Thank you, Greg. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Well, I, uh, I just really I pre- appreciate you mentioning that, Greg, because it, it is so true uh, that we are here not for not to listen to me or to Greg, but to hear Jesus and to hear what He has to say through His Word. And um, I just I uh, I'm really excited about being up here this morning. I I even offered to Greg. It wasn't like a Hey, Nick, I need you to fill in this week. It was a How can I help out? I'd like to offer to preach this week. And so um, I'm really excited to be able to share this with you this morning. Um, It is a joy to prepare a message and to be able to share it to you. There's so much that I have learned in studying these 20 verses that we're going to go over today. Um, It's probably one of the most uh, well-read passages in Scripture because it's the Christmas story. Uh, We're going to read in Luke chapter 2. And... um, but it's just, uh, you're going to see, and hopefully I don't keep you here too long, but you're going to see just the, the awesome wonder of our God and his providence and what he's presented to us in just these 20 verses. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to share this with you this morning, and um, I hope that you are uh, excited to be here with me. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into the, the passage here. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for um, this opportunity that you've, you've given us to come into your, your house and to study your word um, and the freedom that we have uh, to gather together as believers and as a family. So just thank you for that. Father, as we think about being here and being present, we think about the ones that are not here with us today as well, that are probably listening online or um, at home and dealing with sickness or uh, uh, pain or whatever, the, whatever it is. Father, I just lift them up to you as well, our our friends and family who are not here with us, uh, just pray that you would continue to comfort them and bless them with health and finances and just keep them, uh, keep them close to you and, uh, and wrap your arms around them. Father, help them to feel your love this morning. Father, we, uh, we, again, we thank you for this time. We ask that you would uh, teach, teach us today. Um, just uh, thank you for the word, your word that you've given to us. Help us to learn from it. And Father, empty me of, of me and fill me with your spirit so that... Uh, we would be able to hear what you have to say and not what I have to say. And uh, Father, give us ears to hear your message this morning. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be uh, continuing in our uh, series that we started uh, back last weekend of, or last week in November, this Advent series, um, and we're going to continue through the new year um, in, through this, uh, the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 today, so please get your Bibles out. And um, open to Luke chapter 2. I encourage you to have your Bible out or your device, whatever it is that you used to, word, used to read the word. Because uh, if, you, if you know my uh, teaching style, we're going to be looking through a lot of scripture. So I, I won't make you bounce around too much. But there, is a few passage, there are a few passages that are, that are actually really key that are really going to help us with this. It's, it's, it's quite incredible um, what we're going to be able to see today. Um, so while you're turning to Luke chapter 2, I want to encourage you. Actually, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you one question. By a show of hands, how many of you within the last three years have heard the phrase, we live in interesting times? Okay, okay. Now, how many of you have found yourself saying the phrase, we live in interesting times? Okay, hopefully not as many hands. But yeah, there's still some hands. Now, how many of you are getting weary of hearing that we live in interesting times? I think we can say all, all of us, right? 
Now, I want to encourage you today. Now is a great time for salvation. Now is a great time for salvation. I can only imagine the Jews who were around at the time of Jesus' birth. They might have been saying, oh, we live in interesting times. You're going to see what I mean by that here in a minute. But as you're going to see today, it was the perfect time for salvation. God had a plan. And his providence prevails always. It was the perfect time for salvation. Okay, so we're going to start uh, our study this morning. And like I said, in Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 20. Um, That's our primary text for today. And I'm going to break it up in two different chunks. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 7 first, and then we'll finish the rest of the passage off um, a little bit later. So uh, let's read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let me read them uh, to you here. Luke records, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, before I dive into this passage and start digging up a little bit more, dissecting a little bit, I I want to uh, make a quick comment here. So, Recall back when Greg first started the series, when we were going through Luke chapter 1, uh, the first few verses of Luke chapter 1, um, he, uh, he reveals to Theophilus, who he's writing this book to, remember, he's writing to Theophilus, and um, he, he, he reveals to Theophilus that Luke's purpose in writing this book is so that he, being Theophilus, and then we, by extension, may have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Remember, he said, um, I write this orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Let me make clear something that we may overlook here in Luke chapter 2. In chapter 2, Luke opens himself up to a much broader scrutiny when it comes to historical accuracy. In the first chapter of Luke, you have... Uh, multiple first-hand accounts. But here in chapter 2, he opens himself up to revealing if this is really true based on historical precedent. Because everybody that he's right, that's reading this at that point in time would have known whether or not what he was saying in verse 1 is true. Because they would have known based on historical accuracy. Like I said, the first chapter that he wrote is based on first-hand accounts. And now anyone who would have been living in the time that Luke wrote this book, would have been able to refute the historical accuracy of chapter 2, of what Luke is presenting here. Throughout the next century, our New Testament canon was being formed, and this gospel, according to Luke, was included in the canon that was first compiled in AD 170, probably around 100 years after Luke wrote this. Okay, so we can conclude with certainty because of the people that were there in the time, they would have known what Luke was talking about, 
we can conclude with certainty that what Luke has recorded for us is historically accurate. It is historically accurate. Okay, so I just wanted to open it up there for you from a historical accuracy perspective. Now, let's get into the meat of the message. The first point I want to make here within this, uh, the first section of where we see the birth of our king, the birth of Jesus, is that when all, when it, when it seems that all hope is lost, God is in control and his timing is perfect. When it seems that all hope is lost, God is in control and his timing is perfect. Let me read again verse 1 in chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first generation when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his hometown. And then we, had, we see that Joseph had to move from Nazareth to Bethlehem to be registered. So keep this in mind. For the Jews, what happened here, what we're talking about here, is significant. This would have been no less than an interesting time for them. Okay? This verse is an indication to us that the kingdom of Judea has been completely dissolved. Because now we have the Roman Empire in complete control of the entire known world. It says a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. This is the Roman Empire. They're in control. This decree from the Roman em- from the emperor of Rome that the world should be registered is what reveals to us this change for the Jews. Until now, no other kingdom or government had complete control of the entire known world. The Jews no longer had their own government or their own kingdom, and they had come under the dominion. Of Rome. Let's turn to the book of Daniel. I told us we we're going to move around a little bit. So let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading from verse 39. Okay, so recall this is a point in um, Daniel's life where he is uh, revealing a dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar uh, had had this dream about this very uh, tall statue that had different, uh, d- different types of elements. And um, Nebuchadnezzar was kind of freaked out by this dream, and he wanted someone to be able to come to him to tell him what his dream was. Not, just, not to let him recant it and then ex- uh, have his, um, his um, help, helpers or nobles or the, uh, the wise men there recant it or tell him what it meant, but he wanted someone to actually tell him what his dream was and then recant it. And we know that Daniel did that. God revealed to Daniel what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was. And then Daniel reveals it to him. And then he explains this. Okay, so talking about um, a portion of the elements. We have the, king of the, 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 the head of gold. And then he works his way down through the elements on this statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees in his dream. Daniel says in, in verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you, meaning to you Babylon, uh, the king of King Nebuchadnezzar, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that, uh, like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, 
it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the fitness, or firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor, the, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Now, I'm sure at this point in time, the Jews had no idea, weren't really thinking about the fact that what Daniel's talking about here is almost certainly the kingdom of Rome, that iron kingdom, the one that's going to come in and take over and rule the entire world. Daniel's probably talking about Rome here, the empire of Rome. And as he goes down through that statue, we've got Babylon, which is the head of gold. Then you have the Medo-Persians, which is the next layer of bronze. Is it bronze? Um, and then you have uh, the next layer from that, that would be Greece. And then from there, finally, would be Rome, would be that, uh, the, the iron. But I want you to notice something that's really interesting. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, and in the days of those kings, meaning this Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. For the Jews living in this point in time that we're learning about with Caesar Augustus issuing this decree for the empire to be uh, registered for taxation, this would have been a moment for them that revealed the end of any possible kingdom. All throughout the Old Testament, there's talk about a kingdom that's going to come, that's going to set up, that you're going to be flourishing, you're going to be a nation of nations, a kingdom of kingdoms. But then here we have Rome. And it's like, what's going on? There's no hope. It was the end of any possible kingdom. They learned about how if they would remain faithful to God, he would bless them and they would be a part of a great kingdom, a kingdom of kingdoms, one that would reign forever. From their perspective, I can only imagine that this was just another sign of defeat, this taxation. The Roman Empire ruled the world, but for God, this was exactly according to plan. As now we can see from our vantage point, as I just revealed to you in verse 44. For at this very moment, when the first taxation is to occur for the entire world from this Roman Empire, Jesus is already in Mary's womb. The one who is going to bring an eternal kingdom. It's already in place. The one who will establish the kingdom that will never be destroyed. As we saw in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44. Okay, this brings me to my next point, And that is, God uses the kings of the world, or the leaders, or the authorities, or whatever. God uses the kings of the world to execute his plan. Remember that. God uses the kings of the world to execute his plan. Okay, so we have this king, this, this empire, 
this emperor, Caesar Augustus, and he wanted to uh, tax the entire world. He wanted to register the entire world so he could tax them, so he could know who was all in his number. It was a point of strength for him, a point of power. I want to know who is all under me, what this whole world is like. Okay? But God was using him for a different plan. I want to turn to Micah chapter 5. I'm going back to another prophet. Micah chapter 5. And I'm going to read, starting in verse 1. Micah records as he's prophesying. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, who are too, or who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, for whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Whoa. So, it was important for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill this passage. And what happens? Out of Joseph and Mary's control completely, Caesar issues this decree, and it just so happens that Joseph is from the town of Bethlehem. So he needs to go back so the baby can be born there. While a king thought he was in control and executing power over his people, God was using that to bring forth the Christ, to bring forth the Messiah. I want to read another passage. You don't have to turn there with me, but Isaiah chapter 10. This is Isaiah chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 5 through 7. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. This is, um, well, let me just read this to you, and then I'll explain what I, why I'm reading this to you. So, Isaiah records in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does... But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. In other words, God's revealing through Isaiah here that the king of Assyria is doing the work of God, even though he thinks that he's executing his own power and judgment over this people. God is the one that's using the king of Assyria, not the king. Isn't that amazing? God uses the kings of the world to execute his plan. And he's still doing it today. So from these two points, if you don't remember anything that I've told you today, remember this. We must believe that God is in complete control. And everything that happens in the world is all part of his sovereign plan. It's all part of his sovereign plan. There are many indications of this throughout all of Scripture. 
And this passage in Luke is an extremely clear example. God has not changed since Luke penned these words. Everything that he's doing, everything is going according to plan. As we see in Micah, though, there may be some purification on the way, and we're going to talk about that later in, later on in Micah chapter 5. There may be ways that God chooses to discipline and bring through fire and purify his people, but it's all part of his plan. Our responsibility is that we trust and obey him through it all. Okay, this last point I want to make before we move on to the next passage of uh, Luke is the king of kings became poor that we might become rich. So now let's talk about the birth and how Jesus uh, entered in. We want to talk about how he entered. In case we forget, this is the king of kings that we're talking about. And this is how he came in. It says in verse 6, Luke chapter 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So let's talk about birth. Who's witness to birth? As beautiful as it is, it's, it's probably not that. Yeah, we're not going to go there. We're going to keep this PG. But it's... You get what I'm saying? And this is our king, the creator of the universe, entered in through birth. Entered in through birth. Okay, enough said there. Manger. The next thing I want to point out is the manger. So it says that Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. We dress up the manger wonderfully in the nativity scene. Did you know that a manger was used for animals to eat out of? And probably not just cows and sheep, but pigs? Pigs? Now, pigs are filthy animals in the Jewish culture. Right? We're talking about the, the thing that animals ate out of, and he's placed in there. She might have cleaned it up a little bit, but still, this is our king, the creator of the universe. And then finally, there's no place for them in the inn. What an incredible foreshadowing of what's to come. I want to just read real quickly here from John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Uh, Charlie actually mentioned it a little bit earlier in one of our songs. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not Receive him. God Almighty, the creator of our universe, humbled himself to the point of an infant, completely helpless, apart from being with Mary and Joseph. And the Apostle Paul even took note of this later on when he wrote 2 Corinthians. I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, or, yeah, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know and it's up there, I think it's up there on the screen. Yeah, for, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What a remarkable statement. So now, in this next passage of Luke, 
we're going to see what Paul means by this when we take a look at the royal birth announcement. Royal birth announcement. All right, so let's go to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 8 through 20. This is the next major portion of our main text this morning. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, we see the announcement of the king's arrival. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So what I want to key in on are just a few things here. And the first is the way in which the angels reveal who this baby is. Okay, so we have, the, we have the first angel that comes, and he says, and this will be my first point, a Savior, Christ the Lord, is born. A Savior, Christ the Lord, has come. I don't know if you realize it or not, but the, the, what this angel said is a massive statement. It is a massive statement, a huge claim. I can't even begin to explain the excitement that the shepherds probably felt when they heard this. Because one, they're getting it from an angel. I mean, that, but that's pretty amazing to begin with, right? It says that they fell in fear. They were, they were afraid for their lives because they've got the glory of God shining around them. They've got this angel. We'll talk about angels in a second. I've got a little thing I want to mention there. But uh, they're, they're, just, they're probably just dripping in excitement because of what these angels are telling them. This angel's telling them, especially what they're going to hear. So here's what, we're, here's what the angel said. He uses the word Savior. Okay, Savior. According to the Reformation Study Bible, Jesus is called Savior only twice in the Gospels. Roman emperors commonly ascribe the title Savior to themselves. But Israel's God insists that He alone is Savior. If you want more information on that, read the book of Isaiah. He insists that He alone is Savior. The next one is Christ. Christ, this is a huge claim. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. This is a huge deal. 
Because all throughout the Old Testament, all of the prophets were pointing towards the Messiah, the King who is to come. And now you've got the angel claiming that this baby that's born in Bethlehem is the Christ. The Messiah. And then finally, Lord. This phrase, this term, is a use of God's covenant name. This is God's covenant name. And all of this put together, Savior, Christ the Lord. The angels might have well have said, hey guys, this is the king that the prophets spoke about and all of the scripture that you've been reading or hearing about is pointing to. He's finally here. The king has come. Your king has come. Let me show you what I mean and what the angels, or what the angels, what the shepherds were probably aware of. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. So this is while... Um, this is while Daniel is revealing the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, Daniel says, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now let's jump down to verses 44 through 45. Daniel says then again in chapter 2, verses 44, And in those days, or in the days of those kings, meaning the days of those kings of the Iron Kingdom, which we are claiming is Rome, and in, those, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. And then I want to jump forward in Daniel to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Daniel records in this vision that he has. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there's just an example of what the Jews would have known about the Messiah, about the coming King. This is who the angels are talking about, and the shepherds would have known this. Now another example of what the Jews would have known about the Messiah, and what the Messiah would usher in, is found back in Micah chapter 5, when we found out that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verses 7 through 15 says, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies, shall be cut off. This is just another 
reiteration of what the prophets had said all throughout the Old Testament, all through prophecy, that this Messiah would usher in an eternal kingdom that would raise Israel, the remnant of Jacob, to a kingdom, eternal kingdom. So they were pretty excited that this baby is the Lord, Savior, the Savior, Christ the Lord. Okay, the next point in this is the holy angels praise God and are excited for his people. Let me make a comment about angels here. They are real. We believe angels are real. We're not weird. This is not mythology. This is real. Throughout all of Scripture, where do angels occur the most? Where something big is about to happen. Think about that. Angels occur where something big is about to happen. We start seeing it with Mary, with Zechariah, and Elizabeth, and Joseph, and now we've got the shepherds. Something big is about to happen. And you know what's funny? As we see through Scripture, the angels enjoy watching the story of redemption. The angels love it. Let me just share with you a few passages. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. Luke says, or Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're excited when someone comes to faith in Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. This is Peter when he's speaking of prophets who would prophesy about the things that we're discussing now. Peter says, It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. What's different about the angels and us? They're created. They're similar in that respect. But they're different because they're living in heaven right next to God. They're serving Him right in the kingdom right now. I'm a little jealous. Because they're there with Him now and they're holy. They don't get to experience and appreciate redemption like we do. They will never, ever experience redemption like we do with the Holy God. And they are so interested in that. And they want to be right there with it and learning about it. I want to read for you a passage in Ephesians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there with me, but I just want to read this for you. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. This is Paul talking about his ministry. The ministry of the gospel. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, get this, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Angels. He then goes on. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we now have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, in addition to saving us, the ministry of Christ 
is revealing the manifold wisdom of God through the church to the angels. And the angels come declaring this royal announcement of this birth. They are so excited to see the redemption of us humans take place. Now let's focus on what they sang. The angels came. you got this heavenly host, this army of angels comes in and starts praising God and they say, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. We live in interesting times. This is a phrase that basically begs the question or cries out the question, where is the peace on earth? Where is the peace? How in the world could these angels dare to declare peace? Are they wrong? The angels didn't promise an immediate peace, something that we might call prosperity. Right? The angels announced a peace that is promised throughout all of Scripture. The promise of a restored relationship with God. We defy God's law, which separates us from God and puts us at enmity with Him, with op- in opposition with Him. In fact, Paul made the claim in his letter to the Ephesian church that if we are apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. Trusting in Jesus alone brings peace with God. This peace can be realized now due to Christ's perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. Because of what Jesus did, we have the promise of a future everlasting peace that is to come when Christ Jesus our King returns to conquer this earth. Isaiah recorded in chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is discussed in greater detail in Revelation chapter 20 through 22. Now another way to emphasize this, the importance of this, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This birth of Christ and this announcement of his arrival is the culmination of everything we have learned as a church this year. Everything that we have been taught. We started out this year in Colossians and learned about how Christ is overall. He's the king. Then we went to the grace of giving and learned about because of Giving the gift that Christ gave us, we should give back and continue to give and give joyfully. We learned about radical dependence. We learned about the risen Savior, which was the Easter message. We learned about what makes your religion better than someone else's. Remember, Tom Short came in and taught us about that. We went through the book of Job and we learned about how Job suffered and saw how that was a foreshadowing of Christ and his suffering for us. And then we went through the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the things that reveal to us how we are sinners, set apart, in need of Him. And we went through a series on praying for me. Being at peace with God means now that you need no intercession of a priest. You can go right to God, right to Jesus, and pray. 
the Lord is your keeper. And then finally, the series that we most recently completed was Stories Jesus Told. Parables that were pointing to the coming kingdom. Everything we have done this year points to this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the final thing I want to mention in this point, and then we'll move on to my last point, and I'll wrap this up. I want to go back to John chapter 1. We start, we, we mentioned, I mentioned a passage here in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Now I want to finish that up, because I, did, I didn't conclude that portion. We learn through John that Jesus came to his own, and his, uh, and his own people did not receive him. And then verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Which leads into my final point this morning, the response. The recipients of this news, the shepherds, the recipients of this news respond and act immediately. They didn't look at each other and start going, well, wonder what, what, wonder what they're talking about here. No, they said, let's get up and we got to go. There's this baby that's born in Bethlehem and this angel says that he's the Savior, Christ the Lord. We got to go check this out. And what they do? They went and they saw exactly what the angel told them. They saw it at exactly what he said. Their response and their testimony, which we're going to see here, serves as the final witness that would be needed in a Hebrew court of law in order to make a conviction. Think about that. You've got three independent sources now. Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and now you've got these shepherds. The Jews couldn't handle that. Because guess what? That's three independent sources for a conviction. Now in this case, typically convictions in the Jewish Hebrew court of law was for people who did bad things. Jesus didn't do anything bad, but you get the point. There's a, there's a witness here. The shepherds provide that final witness. The Hebrews needed two or three independent witnesses to confirm the accuracy of anything that was being alleged. And we see the three witnesses here. And these shepherds reveal to Mary and Joseph and who was with them that this is the Savior, Christ the Lord. So how will you respond? You saw how the shepherds responded. How will you respond? Just in these 20 verses alone, in Luke, Luke presents enough evidence and certainty to historically prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, God in the flesh, the stone cut not by human hands, the one who is to establish an eternal kingdom. He has established an eternal kingdom, and you are sitting in it. The church is his eternal kingdom. The prophecy has been fulfilled and his salvation power is at work and it's still at work today. So if you haven't already, will you recognize that in front of a holy God, you are a sinner 
in need of a Savior. We all are, myself included. And we cannot, we cannot, and we do not keep his commands. We went through all ten of them earlier this year. It was hard. Because we know we can't keep them. Jesus came to give a peace to those who believe and trust in him. He is our bridge to God because of the life he lived, the death he died, and the resurrection from the grave. He took our place. He took your place and bore God's wrath that we all deserve. Paul teaches in Romans that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Will you turn away from your sin today and believe in him? What is your response? I love the way the angels started their announcement. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest indeed. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to, to walk through the Christmas story this morning and um, just to see what your word is teaching us and how you, how you were teaching even in, through the prophets hundreds of years, centuries before Jesus came. And we have this revelation from the angels that the Savior, Christ the Lord, has been born. Father, we thank you so much for revealing to us this truth. We thank you for the accuracy and thank you for using Luke to record this with such accuracy so that we would be certain of the things that we've been taught. And while we get everything we need from these 20 verses to reveal who you are, you give us your entire word. 66 books of your word to us. Thank you, Father, for giving us what we need to come to know you. The mercy you've shown us is incredible. We thank you for your son who came and who died and who is living in heaven right now. We thank you for that, and he is our king right now. We thank you for that. We look forward to the day when he comes again. And we'll be singing this praise again. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.